Hey folks, welcome back to On The Mic with Mike Peters. My guest this week is Dan Guerin, a comedian from Albany. Dan's an elementary school gym teacher and a former wrestling coach who got a start in stand-up in 2012. Since then, he's become a regular at the Comedy Works in Saratoga, the Albany Funny Bone, and he works at clubs all over the Northeast. I met him at the Funny Bone in Syracuse, and he is a great dude. He's an excellent writer and extremely disciplined, and it definitely shows on stage. So get out your notebooks for this one. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to the podcast. If you like what you hear, sign up for the Patreon. It's just five bucks a month. You can follow Homebrewed Comedy on Facebook or go to homebrewedcomedy.com to see all of my dates. Thanks again. I'll talk to you guys next week. Take care. Outside your bedroom, I, I hope they let me in. Thank you so much for doing this, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. This might be the earliest I've ever recorded, so thank you for that. Yeah, I don't, I just knew that you, uh, your days are usually free, you know, based on what you told me at the when we work together, and then I'm always up. And uh, we're actually getting some stuff done at the house later today. So it'd just be better to get it done early. No, I'm fine with that. Uh, what are you guys working on at the house? Just having somebody come over and work. We got a garage door problem and he's coming over in the afternoon. Yeah, I, it's, uh, I rent everything. So like, like I never owned a house. So all that stuff is foreign to me. Like, oh, I, right. I have to actually like pay somebody to fix my garage. <laughs> I make a call and be like, hey, I'm not going to be home today. So you guys know the the key, you know, right. you know how to get in. So yeah, I'm, I'm holding on to that shred of irresponsibility. So what else do you have planned today? That's it. Nothing. I mean, we're off from school this week, so we don't have any, uh, any plans or anything during the day and nothing's going on during the, the week during the day. So nothing really just chilling out. You got comedy works this weekend, right? This weekend comedy works. Yes. And the following weekend comedy works. And then uh, just some different stuff. I've got a brunch show at the funny bone, March 20th. And then I got a couple of gigs in Massachusetts near Worcester. One is a one nighter. And then one is a club weekend at the attic comedy club. So how busy are you doing comedy? I mean, it, it seems like uh, you're always working. Yeah, pretty busy. I mean, not an average. I mean, COVID kind of changed the, the parameters on all that stuff because it really slowed everything down for a year but before covid was going i was up and running 40 45 weekends a year i mean doing doing a lot of opening and a lot of hosting in the f- first few years but now moving more into featuring and it, you know starting to close on a, re- a more regular basis so yeah i've always been consistently working pretty much you started what nine years ago you said yeah i started in the fall of 2012 so was- uh, just over nine years how has it changed since then? Like, like, cause you came up through Albany too, right? Right. How's Albany changed? When I first started in Albany, uh, it was kind of an outlaw, very loosely connected, uh, bunch of one nighters and bar shows. There wasn't a lot of access to club work for local comedians. At least it wasn't when I first started. And then the comedy works opened up their doors and started doing amateur nights. And they were looking for local talent to host and open shows. So two months after I started uh, doing open mics, they were having tryout nights and I started going to the tryout nights. You could go once a month. They had them every week, but they're rotating people through so you could get on the lineup once a month. 
And whoever did the best, there were some judges got to host a late show Friday uh, for the week that you did it. So uh, that was everybody's goal who was a newer comic was trying to get on stage and trying to start getting club work. And uh, I eventually got in after a couple of tries and just started working right away at the comedy works. And that ended up leading to other club work and and meeting people who were doing one-nighters and stuff. So really about March of 2013, I pretty much started doing doing it for money and never looked back. Was that a quicker process than you figured? I really didn't know who to judge it against. I just knew because it basically the opportunity for it started when I started. So I didn't know what it was like for those comics who were doing it in the local scene two, three, four years before me that didn't have any access to any club work. But what I did realize after I started working was um, I kind of was fortunate to do it in the right way because I was around a lot of the professional comedians and good comedians. And I didn't develop a lot of bad habits that people can develop when you're doing nothing but bar shows and open mics. You can kind of become a bar show and open mic comic. And I never really had to unlearn any of the stuff that some of the people I started with had to unlearn to become kind of viable club acts, you know, and really start doing it for money and start doing it on the pro level. What habits are you talking about? Uh, Well, when I first started, the kind of bar shows and and really small shows that were going on in Albany was you'd be performing in the back of a bar with the TVs on and the noise going and the distractions of the wait staff walking in front of you. And comedy was basically going on in the background and it didn't, it allowed people to kind of, um, it kind of forced them to develop a, a really like a combat comedy style where they're like, just, you know, just fighting for their lives and developing jokes and material and a style of delivery that would just basically shouting over a crowd rather than being a respectful, you know, professional setting where people are actually sitting and listening to you. And I saw a lot of people not really able to transfer that their acts from the bars and the uh, open mics acts would be a little bit dirtier, a little bit looser, a little bit uh, more shock humor than what was kind of required to be a, a club comic and kind of be a little more palatable for a paying audience. Do you think it's harder to go from a bar comedian to a club comedian or a club comedian to a bar comedian? Uh, well, I can always do the club shows. I could always do them. I always prefer to be in the, uh, like a more professional club setting, but I do think I've seen a lot of my peers struggle and still struggle and didn't improve at the rate that some other comics did because they're still their idea of what stand-up comedy is was developed in their early years. And they did years and years of those bar shows. And I hear similar stories of people who go to New York and are stuck in the open mic scene and the bar show scene, you, you become good in that scene, but it's a scene, you know, primarily the main goal is to get out of that scene and not perform just in front of comics and in, in bar shows and stuff. You want to kind of get into the, into the club system or, you know, professional system. And uh, I was kind of spoiled because I get in right away. So I, I, going back and doing some of those shows, I still do them now. Um, You can kind of see, you know, the difference in, uh, in styles and in uh, preparation and stuff. So, you know, it's just a different mindset. Some of those comedians who I started with who were in the scene three, four years, they didn't really, once the club started opening up and we had access to the comedy works and the funny bone and, uh, you know, some of the rooms in upstate New York, they never really got on board with the club scene of comedy. Some of them stopped. And I guess that's the nature of stand up. You see people turn over and you'll, you'll see people come and go after a few years, but they weren't able to really become professional comedians. They weren't able to adapt and kind of uh, 
and and do it the way I kind of learned how to do it. I always thought the degree of difficulty at a bar show would help you at a club show, where, right? The, where the setting is sure it can. I think if you have enough experience with the comedy club shows, you can let that experience and that toughness work in your favor because there's always tough crowds no matter where you work. But I think some of them had so little experience of actually performing in front of paid crowds that they couldn't see that as the end goal. That for them, that wasn't their focus. They knew comedy is doing doing the bar shows and the you know beginner shows and and those and everybody was doing really short sets, showcase sets, 10, 15 minutes. So nobody really developed into a host and then a feature and then eventually a, a headliner. One of my pet peeves, and the reason I do a four-person show when I book is that I want people to do more than 10 to 15 minutes, or at least right. that's the minimum. Because sure. I don't think you can, like you said, I don't think you can find out who could do a half hour by doing simply showcase shows. Right. And, and I, I thought, you know, it's it's hard to build an act five minutes, seven minutes, eight minutes at a time. Sure. At some point, somebody has to give you that leeway to work a longer set. And I think for me, 15 minutes was a big kind of stepping stone and getting up to 20 minutes was a, a very hard challenge for me in the beginning. Cause I was doing tens. I, I was doing tens to the point hosting where I had two or three different 10 minute sets that were very tight and worked in the clubs when I was hosting or on one nighters when I was hosting, but to do the longer set, just the energy level, how it changes and just the flow of a set that's 20 minutes long for me initially was tough to get over. I remember, you know, looking at my watch or, you know, looking at the timer on the stool and I'd be around, I got stuck at kind of that 17 or 18 minute mark the, probably for a few months when I first started getting the op- opportunity to, to do a 20 minute set, like a feature set. How'd you get over that hill? I just kept doing it. But I also, like you were talking about with your one nighters, you're always working with the comedians with a little bit of a soft cushion. I was never booked by a booker or a club owner right away to do those 20 minute sets. Whereas like I had to make the 20. So there was a few nights where I'd get 17 or 18 and the natural flow of the set would be to wrap it up. And I had the blessing of the person I was, you know, booked for. I, I did a lot of one nighters for a guy named Aaron David Ward, who's a comedian from the Albany area, Boston spa area, who ran a company called the not too far from home comedy tour. And he did one nighters all over the Northeast. And that's really where I got a lot of road chops because I had the ability to work in front of different crowds but also be on paid shows and be in a bunch of different venues from your Elks Lodges. We would do small venues and, and back rooms of bars all the way up to theaters. So I got uh, experience doing all different kinds of venues and uh, r- really good experience there. And I had the option of um, flexibility. Like I was doing 15 minute hosting sets, doing 15 minute to 20 minute feature sets where the crowd's already warmed up for you. And then eventually working in a strong 25, 30 minute feature sets to eventually doing the 45 to an hour and closing for him. So that's really where I learned how to kind of climb the ladder because the clubs are a little restrictive. They want you to execute the job that you've been booked for. You know, they want you to be a good host when you're hired for a host. They want you to be a good feature when you're you're hired for a feature. So there's not as much flexibility in the club. Do you like hosting? I did in the beginning. I, I liked what it did for me. And, and just like you were talking about before with the bar shows, hosting helps you build chops because you go up to the cold crowd And uh, I actually on purpose in the beginning would um, like to host because nobody wanted to do it, especially we were doing showcase shows and everybody's doing the same amount of time. But as a host, you get a little bit extra time because you're bringing everybody up. So 
maybe on one showcase show with eight comics, you get to read the crowd eight times. You go up in between everybody and you can uh, say a joke if it's needed, give somebody a good intro when it's needed, cool the audience down a little bit if somebody just killed to give the next comic a more level playing field. I liked what it did. I, I would prefer not to host now. I'm nine years in, but I always have that um, skill that if it's a real hammer show with like three really good comics, I can step in and host and do a good job. And uh, people are usually pleasantly surprised when you have an experienced comic host, because uh, right from the beginning of the show, you get a strong act and a strong comic and it sets the, uh, the rest of the acts up. I liked hosting, especially early, early uh, in my career, because I thought of it, especially at, like an open mic. I treated it as like a, like a comedy pop quiz where You've got 17 people doing five minutes. And I right. looked at it as like, okay, I got to make a joke between everybody. So I'd listen right. harder to the set, try to riff on that a little bit, you know, just a 25, 30 second thing between people. And I just like that challenge. And now it is a challenge. Yeah. yeah. And I'm hosting now, you know, predominantly because, uh, you know, everything I produce, I host. And I like being the conductor. And like, sure, I can, I can get the hell out of the way if somebody ends really strongly. I'm like, cool, don't need me. And you just just keep the momentum going. And I don't know, I just like directing how the show goes. I think that's for me, it's more of a control thing than anything sure. else. And I really enjoy that part. Do I get tired of hosting? Absolutely. And whenever Man. I'm asked to feature anywhere, I'll take it. But yeah, I, I enjoy it. I, I think being a host is the easiest way for me. Uh, to become a better comedian, because you said yeah. more stage time and you're dealing with a cold audience and you have to figure them out. Right. I learned early on that if you were willing to host, you were going to work a lot more. Yep. The The other side of that, though, is usually the pay isn't great and usually you're not getting as much stage time. So it's definitely a balance. If I'm if I'm in town, if I'm like not having to travel or anything, doing a hosting weekend at a club like the funny bone where there's four or five shows. I mean, you're getting 75 minutes of stage time uh, and getting to work with national headliners. That's a good deal, but traveling the host for me, I used to do it a lot in the beginning, but I'm kind of weighing it out now. If I get an offer, it depends on what the money is. It depends on who I'm working with. If it's friends of mine and I know it's going to be a fun weekend, I'd be willing to do it. But as my act has progressed and the longer I've done it, I'm kind of naturally into that feature and occasional closing spot now. So I, you know, you can always go, go back and host and it does make you better. Now, when I host, my focus is working on um, maybe some newer material or some stuff that's almost finished, but I don't have the burden of having to have the quality of material that I would need to feature or close. So I, I just kind of take it like that, that it's an opportunity for me to work out and just work on some new stuff, you know, coming up cold, but that the act of coming up to the cold crowd and starting the show off, that's something that I think everybody needs to do to build their their chops as a comic because if you can get good response good laughs and really develop your act coming up to a cold crowd that's really going to make you tell you start featuring and the crowd's already warmed up and you're like this is great i mean the show is already going i don't have to get them for a few minutes i don't have to make announcements for the club or do any of that kind of uh, paying your dues that that hosting requires and you have to be if you're doing a showcase you got to be tuned in the whole show because you're keeping the eye on the, the time for the comics you're getting everybody on and off stage. So you got to be in when you're just featuring or closing, you're just focused on your own set. And that's a, that's a really good thing for your own set, but yeah, hosting forces you to be sharp. You got to be on the whole time. One of my favorite things as a host is hearing stories about 
you know, because I host so much around Binghamton, especially that, mm-hmm. you know, I, I kind of feel like I am depriving the local comedians of getting that hosting experience. So sure. when I see them uh, or when I hear about them having to host somewhere else or working with somebody else who, you know, might not do a great job, it makes me smile a little bit because I'm like, oh, yeah, now, right. now you know how hard it is to right. host that show because, yeah. you know, they're in a luxurious position down here where, oh, I don't have to worry about a cold crowd. It's going to be fine right. because I'm going to be open up and, you know, they're going to be warm and uh, they know, oh, don't go dark here. You know, like right. stay away from that topic. So I, sure. I, I don't know. There's there's a point of pride I have in that. But yeah, it, there, it's hosting, I think, is a very, it's a selfless job at times and sure. super underappreciated. Definitely underappreciated. I actually think the pay scale should reflect that. I wish... Uh, in clubs that, that, I mean, they should pay hosts more. If, if people were able to tour as hosts and they, they paid along the pay scale more like features, which actually is becoming more and more cost prohibitive to travel as a feature, but clubs could use a good host and people would travel and get those chops to, to learn. I mean, you really are doing a service to the show and to the club by being a good host, acting like a professional on and off stage. Uh, you're kind of like the bridge between the club and the, the show, the other acts. So, you know, you really set the tone. And if you can do a good job and put it into people's heads that um, this is going to be a great show, all these guys are really good. You know, this is the first guy, the opening act, and he's really good. So this is going to be a really good show. And I've, I kind of take pride too, when, uh, when I did host, if the features thought I did a great job, they're like, man, you did such a great job. You went up and just did material and you got them and you got good laughs and you set the tone for the rest of the night. And then the feature has a great set. And then the headliner has a great set. And uh, you can take some, nobody um, outside of comedy will know that you had a big part of that, but the comedians know, and you know, and club owners know too, because if you're a good host, you will work regularly. They need people to to do it. You know, they need people to do a good job. I like being at clubs. Uh, I don't do it very often, but like the funny part when you're doing guest spots, you're hosting, whatever, is that in my head, at least nobody knows who the fuck you are after the show. Right. Because, and I, I honestly think they probably shouldn't, especially if you're doing mm-hmm. a guest spot, but like, because, you know, the feature and the headliner are doing such heavy lifting. I always think that in order to be a decent host, you have to, you have to om- almost be like that, that middle child syndrome where it's right. like, oh yeah, like we're used to being forgotten about. It doesn't right. matter. Like, like the ego has to be very, very low. Sure. I mean, anything that you get is bonus as a host. If people yeah. come up to you and they say that you, they enjoyed your set too, or that they uh, they really liked all three of you, or, or you know, we've gone to comedy shows before, and sometimes the headliner is the only act we like, but the opening acts were good. So I, I mean, you learn to just take what you can get, but not expect that. You know, you learn pretty quickly that it's not your show if you're right. doing ten to fifteen up front. You know what I mean? But at the same time, you're appreciative of the opportunity that you're working. I had somebody explain to me a headliner one time. It was one of my first hosting weekends, and he and he said, "Do the math." And I go, what do you mean? And he goes, how many comedy clubs you think are around the country doing shows tonight with a three person show? And he goes, there's 50 states. Think about it. And then he goes, maybe 200, you know, maybe 200 clubs around the whole country. And he goes, there's three people on each show. There's 600 comics working in the whole country. He goes, you're one of them. So think about how many people are home tonight that are features and headliners and really experienced comedians that are not working because they're not booked because there's only so many spots you're here and you're, you're doing it, you know? So that kind of puts it into perspective that if you're working, you're winning, it really comes down to 
just trying to stay as busy as you can. And the more you're doing it, it means that you're doing a good job. You know, you're, you're doing the right things. When did you think, okay, well, I want to pursue comedy. I mean, I, mean, I must've been before nine years ago. Right. I've always been a fan of comedy. I've always, uh, you know, liked comedy and I became a teacher and in, in being a teacher and a coach, uh, you're always doing public speaking. And if you're naturally funny, you're always being funny while you're doing it. You're being entertaining. I never actually considered comedy for me because I really didn't know that you could do it and start not in a major market. I didn't know that you could be in Albany, New York or Binghamton, New York or Syracuse, New York, and that there's a comedy scene and that there's open mics and um, you can actually really do it depending on uh, you know how you pursue it. And I was taking classes through continuing ed to learn how to play guitar. My kids were getting a little bit older, a little more independent. I was just doing something to get out of the house. So I was taking classes at the local um, school, learning how to play guitar. And then when the books came out for the the new sessions, like for the new upcoming continuing ed sessions, one of the local school districts had a comedy 101 class. And in the description, it said, you go for six weeks. And then at the end, your class does a show, like a graduation show. So my wife saw that and brought it to my attention because she knew I was a huge comedy fan. I always watch tons and tons of stand-up. My favorite thing to watch would be stand up and sketch comedy like Saturday Night Live. And I used to watch all the specials uh, growing up and I always loved, loved comedy, but I didn't, I never thought that I would be a comedian. You know, I just, I didn't pursue it as a career. I didn't know that you could do it. And I was teaching full time and married with a couple of young kids. And then once I took this class, I learned about the open mic scene. I learned that uh, a lot of people start locally and you know as long as you're in a decent sized area that has enough people that can sustain shows and and stuff like that you can actually start and then I did very well at the graduation show it was it was a show with people from the class and a few professionals scattered in and found out pretty quickly that I was a natural joke writer and was kind of likable on stage and people were reacting well to the the sets looking back on it now it's pretty horrific what you do for your first 5 minutes but I seem to do be doing better than uh, some of the people that were at my level that I started with. And I think uh, starting at an older age, I was 40, a little more understanding of what hard work means and just being professional and just being dedicated to something that you want to pursue. So once I uh, finished with the graduation class, I continued going to the open mics. And for I learned that a lot of people, when they take a comedy class at the end, it's a bucket list thing and they never do it again. They kind of, it's just a self-contained little thing where you go for a few weeks, they talk about joke writing, somebody works with you and kind of shapes your five minute set. And then you perform in a crowd, you know, that's full of friends and family. So everybody kind of does well, regardless of how you really do. And it's, it's like comedy in a friendly environment. And then I just kept going to the open mics and then the people at the open mic scene, the other comics were kind of like, wow, you're, you're still coming. And I, I was surprised. I was like, what do you mean? And they go, most people, when they do the graduation show, they're all done. We never see them again. They'll kind of pursue it while they're doing the class. And then once it's over, they just never see it. And I've actually seen that quite a bit because now I will host or um, headline the graduation shows locally for different comedy classes. And I'll just, you know, you'll see some people perform at the graduation show and you're like, pretty funny. They got some good stuff considering it's the first couple of times they've been on stage. And then you just, you just never see them again. So I kept doing it. And then, like I said, in, in February of, uh, no, in January, in January of 2013, I was like two months in, I had maybe done 10 or 15 sets. I was going to one comedy open mic a week. 
And I was, I was in, you know, for such a short time, I didn't even know that people went to more than one open mic a week. And then some of the other comics are like, you know, there's another mic on Tuesday. The big one was on Monday in, in Albany. It was at Lark Tavern. And then people go, you know, there's a music one over here on Wednesday, but they allow comedians to perform if they're clean. So I basically just learned that you could go up as much as you want. And then when they started having the tryout shows at the Comedy Works, it just started being somewhere where I'd hang out. If I wasn't performing at one of the shows, I was going on the other Tuesday nights to see the other local performers who in the beginning, I really looked up to a lot of those comedians because when you first start, somebody who's been doing it two years seems like so much further ahead than you are, you know, like, so all of us who were in that open mic scene, there was a lot of people I looked up to and would ask them questions. And I'd see them perform at these shows and see people have good and bad sets under the pressure of trying, you know, a tryout kind of situation for the big you know, getting passed at the club to do paid sets and stuff and and host late night shows at the club. And then uh, my third try doing that in between doing the mics, it was March of 2013. I won the contest and was able to host uh, the Friday Night Late Show and uh, did a good job at the Friday Night Late Show and then was asked by the, the club owner, Tommy Nicky, along with some other comedians, if I wanted to rotate in as a host. And that we could uh, come to the club whenever we weren't working and watch shows for free. So for me, that was like huge. And I would I would come to the shows whenever I wasn't or, you know, the club whenever I wasn't working. And in the beginning, you're not working that much. So maybe I'd, I'd rotate in every fourth or fifth week and get a paid set. And then on the other weekends, I'd come and watch my friends and see them progress. And we talk about everything. We also formed a writer's group, too, with all the MCs that were rotating in. And we would meet at the club during the week and uh, two, three days a week and go over our material. And in the beginning, it was like, it was a really good way to start because we didn't have that much material. So we were like really just building our acts together. But being in the club a lot just gives you that frequency of knowing what's expected. When you see somebody kill or have a really strong set. And uh, my focus right away was the features because headlining seemed like going up there for 45 minutes to an hour just seemed like a million miles away. But the feature acts were still young and hungry and they were doing like a really tight 2025 and they would kill, but they were still accessible to newer comics like us. They were people who were like five to 10, maybe 12 years in. And uh, they seemed like the natural progression would be like, I want to get to that level. You know, I want to be able to like just really command the audience for for that long. So we got, you know, we, we had a lot of experience to to see comedy at all levels. You'd see a lot of good comedy and then you'd see people make bad decisions and see some bad comedy you'd see people uh who are booked to come in for a weekend and uh maybe get too drunk before the shows maybe worry too much about trying to date a waitress than do their set you know like so you'd see all kinds of good and bad behavior and then we had access to the club owner uh, who's also a manager and a booker tommy and he he knew comedy from the artistic sense of actually knowing the nuts and bolts that work you know for comedians and it's different for every comic but he also knew the business side of it, too, of what makes somebody an ideal person to book for shows. And I learned a lot about, you know, just being consistent and being respectful of the crowd and respectful of the club. And uh, for me, that was easy. And I learned that for a lot of people, it's not easy. And they kind of just they don't really they aren't successful because they're not able to conduct themselves professionally, you know, on and off stage. And they can, if some if if you're a headache, you know, you, you kind of learn that if somebody's a headache, why book somebody who's a headache when you can book somebody else who's not a headache for the same money, who is just as funny, if not funnier. So you kind of learn a lot of those dynamics. So just being in the club 
gave me a huge education and meeting headliners and people who I really looked up to who had done TV and, and stuff like that. Uh, it just kind of let me know that I was in the, the right place to, to learn how to do it. You're mainly talking about discipline and, yeah. but you're a wrestling coach or you were, right. or, or, so I was, yeah. I mean, I covered wrestling for, I don't know, eight years, nine years. And that I would say discipline is the primary tool. They, at least that I, as a reporter, I mean, everybody right. was disciplined. Anybody was good at least. So do you think sure. that helped you going in there at 40, a teacher, a coach, were you just kind of like, did you walk in there already mentally ready to go? Right. I didn't know that I was, I didn't know that my, um, that my discipline and just experience of being a responsible adult would help me a lot in comedy because nobody's watching you and you're doing everything on your own and you can either decide to write or not write and you can decide to you know work or not work or send avails or not send avails. It's as much as you want to do. So I knew that if I worked hard and just stayed consistent, it wasn't like I was um, doing an insane amount of of writing, you know, or anything that I didn't think I was capable of doing. I would sit and write every day. And the biggest thing for me was that I noticed that a lot of comedians weren't doing was they weren't editing and they weren't really improving their act. They weren't really taking a lot of chances. And a lot of them were hanging their hats on jokes that I didn't think were that good, but they kind of worked. And they were, they, they were just, they kept doing stuff, material that kind of worked. And I'm like, well, if it kind of works and it's just okay, then you're going to be just okay. So you're going to have to find out what works and use it, you know, when you're on stage for survival and to have good sets, but you're also going to have to start trying to improve your writing and, and go for better jokes and a more complicated, you know, writing and performing style and try to improve on what you're doing. So I'm, I'm pretty good at goal setting and pretty good at creating a system that allows me to, to just work on stuff on my own and, and try to improve it. So there was a lot of self-reflection. I didn't have a real peer group because um, even the comedians who I started with were mostly in their 20s. So it wasn't like we were hanging out all the time or we had a lot in common because I still have a full-time job and a wife and two kids. So I had to find little uh, spots during the day to get my writing in. A lot of stuff was done after the kids went to bed and maybe sacrifice sleep to get that extra time in. But it's like anything else. I find that... Uh, you know, sometimes the busier you are, the more productive you are, you get more stuff done. Sometimes you have nothing to do and then you end up doing nothing all day, you know? So I was always busy and always had a, um, a schedule. It allowed me to not get into a rut. And I just kept dragging myself to those open mics. I talked to comedians who had been doing a long time and they go, listen, drag yourself to those open mics on the days that you don't feel like it. You got to go, you got to go. You got to just keep going up on stage because you got to get through that get over that hump of in the beginning, being a new comedian, who's not very good. You got to just put the time in and it's ugly and it's going to hurt. And you're going to be bored because you're perfecting your five or your 10 or, or anything else. And I also took a different approach at the open mics too, that some comedians would come in and they were brand new comedians one or two years in, and they would just do a brand new five every time they come in, but nothing would ever get refined. They would have their ideas in their notebook and throw the premises out. I was trying to develop an act at the mic. And when I got a strong five, I then was looking to get a strong 10 and then ro and rotate bits in and really just keep, keep bringing stuff out. And I remember I got interviewed one time because a lot of people would think they weren't a good comedian if they were doing the same material all the time, because in the beginning, it's just other comedians that hear you. But I was of the mindset right in the beginning. I go, this is practice. It doesn't matter what the 
people in the crowd think. I have to develop this material. It has to come out of me over and over and over again until I refine it. And I would watch documentaries on comedians and they would talk about perfecting an hour for a special and working on it for a year. And I'm like, well, if these guys are pros doing it at the highest level and they're doing the same stuff over and over and over again to get it right for a special and to really perfect it, then who am I to not do that in the beginning? So I would do my same stuff. I would reorder it. I would add things in a little at a time and I would try to be uh, strategic in terms of making that material better, getting new material, but making the material that I had better. And I'm still doing that now. I have stuff that works now and I'm still playing around with the order, playing around with the um, you know tags and, and everything else because I'm kind of in a place now where you can have two perspectives. And being nine years in and in a small market, you kind of feel like a veteran, but at the same time, nine years in in a comedy career is not, I mean, there's people doing it 20, 30, 40 years. So I still have a, a long way to go and I still approach it that way. You know, how much fun is it to tinker with the set and add one little tag? I mean, you, you've got, yeah. let's say you get, you're working on the same 20 minutes for five years. Sure. When you find that one little tag, I mean, does that make all that work worth it? I've kind of found different things that uh, bits that have worked, but you you know that they're not perfect, and sometimes they go away, and you'll you'll do other stuff, but you always have them. I have you know I do so much featuring right now that I try to rotate 35, 40 minutes of material, and if I'm doing 25 minute sets, so it's kind of like it's a strong set. I open strong, I close strong, and then I'm working on different bits in the middle. And then if I'm doing a um, a headlining set, then it's like 45 or an hour. I'm pretty much pulling out. You know, I probably have an hour 15 of stuff that has worked, but if I'm doing the 45, it's the best 45 and it's got to be cohesive. Sometimes a new tag or a new angle on something will completely change my thoughts on the bit and kind of rejuvenate it. It could be for me, the best things to work on are things that work and you know that they're going to get laughs. So you have the comfort zone of knowing that it's going to work in your act. It's not going to like come to a screeching halt, but at the same time, knowing that it's not done. So you can riff with it a little bit or try to stretch it a little bit and add a line in here or there and see where it goes. And sometimes those little add-ins or tags or anything do or don't work, but they don't really sour the bit because uh, everything else in it works. So you can just take little chances. I try to take measured chances on stage. I take more chances if it's a local show, uh, friends booking me for a show and it's, you know, if it's like a $20 spot and it's local, I'll take more chances you know, a bar show or something that I will if I'm booked to be in an A room or work in a theater opening up for somebody. And that, you know, where you, you're being paid to kind of service the show and the audience, I'm I'm trying to really hammer and, and deliver the best show I can. So I might still take some small chances then, but it's all just about knowing when to to take the chances and, and uh, you know, how many chances to take in a set. Because for me, it's always important to deliver and keep the integrity of the set and always do a good job. But at the same time, the mindset is always improving and getting better. So a new tag can completely rejuvenate a bit for me. Or or if I find a connection between two bits, or sometimes I can take the essence of one joke, the formula for one joke, and say, you know, that the rhythm of that joke actually would be really good for this and kind of plug different stuff into it. And, and uh, for me, I've been doing it long enough now, I actually worry about losing stuff because once you get away from material... Um, you look at it differently the next time you you go back to it. And I've kind of harvested stuff out of my notebooks and out of, you know, I have like a bank of material that it'll completely service the act in a different way when I go back to it. It could just be one line. It could be a joke that's relevant for a bit I'm already doing. And uh, 
you know, bits kind of, they get new life. You know, sometimes you walk away from them. I've had people explain to me that sometimes when you come up with an idea, you're not a good enough writer or comic yet to really pursue that idea to the fullest. The idea is great, but you don't have the skills yet to really flush it out. So keep it and keep thinking about it and then keep chipping away at it. And then when you're ready, you'll have a different take or a different way to pursue that bit. So we're kind of, uh, you know, you're kind of limited in, in uh, your own limitations. And, and I, you know, I guess it's like that with a lot of different people who are creative. You're, you have di- you have different skill sets that continue to improve. But um, my, for me, my writing has always been way far ahead of my performing because you can write, you know, I've kind of probably been writing comedy in my head my whole life. And then uh, when I started, I do far more writing than I do performing, even if I'm really busy as a comedian. If you're doing a club weekend and you do four or five sets and you do some spots during the week for practice and stuff, I mean, I write, I sit down and write every single day. So for me too, I'm always trying to get my performance level to match my writing. That's kind of like what my goal is. I'm I'm concerned now more about the way the jokes are being delivered, you know, more than just the the writing of the joke because the writing I thoroughly enjoy. For me, um, I because you can do it anywhere. I can sit down and write material and refine my material and stuff, and it's just a never-ending process. You never really get there. You know, there's there's always so many things to pursue. That's one of the things I like about it the most is that there's no end. You just you pursue it because you you just love it and it's it's motivating to get better. Yeah, is a bit for you ever finished? No, I don't think so. And I see people turning over like, like the the trend now with the really high high level headliners is they're turning over hours now every one or two years. And so what you're seeing is a different kind of comedy on the specials. If I was to to record an hour, I would want it to be perfect. I would never want, I would want to be sure that it's never, um, never going to be something that I look back on and don't, you know, want to improve anymore, but different people have different thoughts about that. There's people like Leno and Seinfeld that really hold on to their material. They never really hammer out as many hours. I don't think Jay ever did a special. And he said, one of the reasons that he never did a special is he makes money from his act. So why would, why would you just put it out there and give it away or, or do spots on TV at the same time, we're always trying to balance. Like I have to get some stuff out there so that people know who I am and what I do. But at the same time, you don't want to burn that material. You know, you get a lot of mileage out of it, doing it, you know, for, for money, for, for a job. What do you teach? I teach elementary phys ed. Okay. I was going to say, if you taught English, I could see how you like writing so much. Right. My wife is actually an English teacher and uh, yeah, she's, uh, she's really, uh, really on top of the structure of writing. I remember early on, she would listen to some of my sets and see some of the stuff I wrote and she would find things in them that were structurally inconsistent or, you know, she would hear the point of view. Sometimes as comics, we're narrators and you want to be like a reliable narrator and be a consistent narrator. So she would find those things in my acts early on. And now I'm, I'm a lot more conscious of maintaining things like, you know, a similar you know, narrative during my act or when I write, you kind of get in your own frequency of what fits your style and what would work in your act, like what your, what your voice is as a writer. And she's kind of helped me find that. So yeah, we're very uh, literal family. Both my kids really strong academically in uh, English and writing and, uh, and my, you know, my wife being a high school English teacher. So I was always interested in writing. I was, um, in creative writing and stuff as a kid. And then, uh, you know, wasn't really the best student as I got older and had a, I had a really strong affinity for sports and 
uh, as an athlete and then eventually wanted to be a coach. So I went into phys ed, but you know, the writing is always there and, you know, love for reading and, and writing. And, uh, always, I've always been a huge fan of comedians who are writers who are like write first or are also comedy writers that, that also, you know, do stand up guys like Brian Kiley, who wrote for Conan, one of my favorite comedians, guy named Fred Wolf, who's written some of the biggest comedies and comedy movies. And is a consultant with like David Spade and, and guys like Adam Sandler and stuff, SNL writers. I've always been like really drawn to comics who, who are uh, strong writers. Is that, Ever anything you wanted to try, like do sketch writing? Uh, I've never uh, done any sketch writing. I've written for comedians. I've been hired to do um, punch up for public speakers and comedians. I've written roast jokes for comedians. I've helped comedians with their their acts. I've done um, worked on a podcast that uh, they're trying to get to go to pilot, uh, doing punch up for that. So really joke oriented and and act like trying to infuse some comedy and some punchlines in the uh, some writing, but I've never done any, any sketch. Yeah. I, I haven't done any of that really since college and mm -hmm. I enjoyed it, but I enjoy directing the sketch and the acting way more than I did the writing for it. Sure. I also wonder like just doing elementary school, like teaching elementary school. Mm -hmm. I imagine when you get on stage, you're not, I mean, maybe you're worried about what you're saying, but your stage presence has to be decent just because of the amount of public speaking you have every day. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely got a lot of crossover. I didn't realize how much uh, being a teacher and talking in front of kids all day and being a coach and, and talking, motivating players. Sometimes it's one-on-one -on -one and sometimes you're talking in front of a group. I didn't realize how unique that was to that job and that it would give me an advantage to feel comfortable doing stand-up right away. I think somebody who works in a cubicle or maybe has a different kind of job where you don't interact with people all day. Like if you were doing construction or some kind of contracting and you're on your own, maybe talk to a couple different people during the day, you'd have a much different skill set than um, somebody who talks in front of large groups all the time. Cause it is a different kind of communication and uh, it actually teaches you to self edit. There's kind of an element of that because if you're a teacher who's long winded and just going on and on and on, especially being a phys ed teacher, I have those kids for a half hour. You've got to get your point across quickly and get to the end quickly. So, you know, they have short attention spans and you want to use most of the time for activity. So I didn't realize at the time, but I've since kind of understood that, yeah, that really did give me a kind of a leg up in terms of converting over to standing on stage and, and telling people jokes. Also, what's the attention span like for those kids? It's, uh, it's like a Friday Night Light show. I mean, it's <laughs> like they're... <laughs> They're, uh, you know, they're little kids. And you also, it also taught me to, um, some people get really, really mad at the audience. And I never really got that mad at the audience because uh, I've been a teacher for 24 years. I'm used to people not listening to what I'm saying in terms of like, not like if there's 25 people in front of me in a class, I understand that some kids are staring at the ceiling and kind of, you know, daydreaming and stuff. So I hear comedians talk about that one person with the arms folded in the front and everybody else is laughing, that doesn't drive me crazy. It really has never driven, driven me crazy. It's not something I've had to work on or anything else. I go, yeah, sometimes people don't like what you're saying. It's okay. It's not, it's not the end of the world. And I've seen people unravel in sets because they thought the crowd didn't like them. And I mean, sometimes there's truth to that. And if they, if you're kind of bombing and they don't really like you, but um, sometimes it's just in your head. People think that like um, they're offended that one person's not 
hundred percent on board with what they're saying, you know? Yeah. I, I never got that. Like, and as a comedian, I'm an awful audience member. So right. a lot of times I'm in the back with my arms folded and it's not because I don't like the comedian. Right. It's yeah. that I'm not cognizant of what my body language is. Right. And you don't really know what other people are thinking. Some people might be at a show and they're not even fans of comedy, but they're, they got dragged out by their friends or their wife or, you know, husband. And you have to just say, you kind of just empathize and look at them and go, all right, they're not here to do exactly what I want them to do. You know, they're people. So I kind of never um, take that stuff personally. I think it served me well, especially because when you're new and you're so, um, you know, you're so self-aware and you're so self-critical, you know, you're kind of like hypersensitive to everything going on in the beginning when you're, when you haven't done that many shows for me, that was never really an obstacle. And I think if you present on stage that you're calm and that everything's okay, that kind of, you know, it comes through in your performance and then, you know, other people start to understand that, you know, you're, you're fine up there. If you're up there and you're concerned about the one person, it's going to come through, you know, in your performance, they're going to see that you're preoccupied or you're angry about something. And yeah, I've seen a lot of people unravel uh, from that and really be upset after a show like that, that one table, they wouldn't listen. And I'm like, you know, I don't know why they get so upset about it, but it's never really bothered me. Yeah, but like the other 25 tables are into it. That's the way I look at it. Yeah, I'm looking I'm looking at it like, you know, don't let the few people who are, you know, not enjoying what you're doing or don't appreciate what you're doing. Don't let it let them ruin it for you, you know. And I think that's something that teaching teaches you to do, too, because there has to be a lot of uh, understanding and a lot of leeway and a lot of picking and choosing your battles. And a lot of just people skills that that comes along with it, and I think that's that's helped me a lot, especially in in the beginning. Because in, if you can if you cannot have problems, any problems that you don't have, you know, because we all have problems in the beginning, just getting our material together and, and performing on stage. Anything that you can do that you you know to bypass any other problems is just going to help you get better faster. You know, my mom taught kindergarten for like thirty years, mm-hmm. and you know, I mean that's thirty years of five year olds. How do you keep your sanity after dealing with right. elementary school kids all day for 24 years? Well, it's, I don't, it's like one of those things, um, even being a teacher, the classroom teachers come into the gym. If they have to talk to me about something and they pick up and drop off their kids, they'll say, man, the noise in here, you know, how do you deal with it? But I'm like, I don't even hear it. I'm like, I, in terms of like compared to the classroom, cause it's just a different situation. I think, I think once you do it, it just becomes what's you know, normal to you, everybody, people have different jobs, you know, and uh, I just, it's, it's never really been an issue for me, but it's really all I've known in terms of, you know, other than uh, comedy, it's, it's the one job I've had for that long. So it's just always been what I've done. And I've always done elementary. I've taught in two different school districts, but I've always done elementary PE and uh, you know, it's kind of like hosting. They need somebody to do the elementary PE. You know, it's definitely, you fight different battles with middle school and high school kids, but you know, they need somebody who's going to, who's going to work with the little ones. It's not, and just like hosting, there's a lot of people who can't do it. I've, I've worked with other PE teachers and talked to them. And they're like, they don't even know how we work in the elementary school, you know? Yeah. My dad teaches band and mm-hmm. you know, he was at the high school level for a while, long time. Uh, let's say 30 years about that. I mean, 32. Right. Yeah, it was 32 and same deal. He said the most important band teachers we're the elementary school band teachers because right. they actually shape the kids into like to go into the next level. It's like feeder system. Sure. And yeah. he hated 
Like he knew who the the band directors were who didn't give a shit. And when right. they were and when they were at the fourth and fifth grade level, he's like, you can't count on anybody from that school. Right? Because they're just yeah. You could dog shit players. You can tell by the way the kids act of who they had as a teacher because the teacher really does set the tone for uh, the way the kids act and the way they feel about the subject. Like for your dad, music, and for me, phys ed. So yeah, there's some truth to that. I had a teacher, sixth grade band. I had him for fifth grade and sixth grade. But at the middle school, right on the chalkboard, he had the days left until he could retire. And every day you walk in, it got one one day shorter. You're like, all right, right, this guy doesn't want to be here now. And it was in the four digits. (laughs) This guy is already mailing it in. It's it's sad. Yeah, and the kids know that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the kids, you know, if you don't want to be there, they're gonna they're gonna know that you don't want to be there. What games can you play with kids? I mean, I I remember like some of my best elementary school memories are in gym. And we, right. I mean, I wouldn't have learned how to crab walk anywhere else. Uh, right. Bombardment was huge. I don't know if right. we do that anymore. Uh, we, obviously, dodgeball we played. Sure. Well, it's a kinder, gentler phys ed now. Right. Uh, there's been a lot of things where, you know, things I think about things that I did. I'm 49 now that we were doing in phys ed. And then the things that we were doing when I first taught, you know, 24 years ago and what we're doing now. So there's definitely more of an emphasis on fitness now. And getting kids to understand uh, to be lifelong learners in terms of their own fitness. So that wasn't a focus in PE at all when I was a kid. It was just no. playing games and, and stuff like that. So we're always working that stuff in. But um, I still try to maintain it's, – it's all about balance. You try to maintain uh, a level of competitiveness. You want the kids to understand that they're trying to win or they're trying to pursue something. But at the same time, you also want to allow everybody – every ability level to be able to be engaged in the game. You know, you don't want kids to be uh, excluded and stuff. And that's the thing about phys ed is it's for everybody. It's not like coaching where it's just the kids who want to be there and the real high level kids it's for every single kid. So you have to make the lessons interesting enough. And it's a challenge because you don't want, you don't want your exceptional kids to be bored and you don't want your kids who struggle to be neglected or left out or anything. So, and it's different from class to class and it's different from year to year because every you learn as a teacher, this is something that helps with comedy too. You learn as a teacher that groups have an identity. Each individual has an identity, but you know, you know that in comedy crowds have an identity. Like, you know, they were kind of quiet tonight or they were kind of loud or they were, they were a really fun crowd and they were kind of in on it. So you kind of learn about a group identity and then you try to teach every class according. You have to adjust. There's classes that, you know, will have fun and we'll get a lot out of this one activity. And you know that the other ones, we're going to try it, but have something else in your back pocket because it might not work with these guys and they might get bored or they might not like it. Are there any similarities between the kids you deal with at school and the comedians you deal with at open mics or on stage yeah. in the club? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, all different kinds of people. There's people that, you know, do everything they're supposed to do and they're, you know, they're easy to get along with. And then there's other people who are tough, you know, and, and, uh, you learn that I, I teach in a school of 400 kids and over my career, I, I don't even know. I think I've taught like over 10,000 kids or something. It's, it's like a lot in, in comedy, we, we work with and meet a lot of people. And the longer you do it, you have every kind of experience there is. Sometimes you're pleasantly surprised at how nice people are. And then, you know, and by and large, most people are pretty chill and easy to get along with even though we all come from different backgrounds we all have different styles of comedy we're all different people there's like kind of a commonality at a show and with other comedians that we're kind of on the same wavelength and we're all we're all doing it you know we all a lot of road shows we've all traveled from far places to do 
this show for probably not enough money and uh, for a crowd that's probably not as appreciative as we'd like them to be. But we're all trying to um, to do it and we're all passionate about it and stuff. So it kind of unites us in a way. But yeah, I mean, I've worked with all kinds of all kinds of people that you're kind of, you know, sometimes they act like children, you know, the, the adults, the comedians, but no big deal. Yeah. But especially me being an older guy, sometimes being a 20 year old kid, I, you know, sometimes I work with a lot of younger kids and stuff. I understand that, you know, they're 25 and I'm, you know, old enough to be their dad. So I'm, I'm in a different place in my life than they are. So, yeah. You just kind of watch them and be like, all right, well, you'll understand in a couple of years. Yeah. There, I mean, there's some lessons I try to teach all the comics I'm friends with. I do uh, everybody here in the Albany scene and I do a lot of stuff with them locally. I consider them friends and I actually work with some comics who I had as students, you know, like I, one of my best friends is a guy named Juan Pantaleon. I was his kindergarten PE teacher. And now he's a comic in his twenties. He books shows and he hires me. And then we will do different shows together and stuff. And I consider him a friend, but I, I look at him and he's, he's so young. He's still a kid, you know, and I see all the, these other people and they, they haven't really, um, started their adult lives yet in terms of like really looking but they're still they're coming at comedy a different way than i am because they're looking at the possibility that they may leave you know their day job for comedy you know like they're still young enough to do it you know yeah are you the funny teacher or does it matter at that age yeah i'm definitely a funny teacher but i think phys ed lends itself to that because they come to the gym to have fun so yeah i'm i'm always somebody who's performing at the school talent show and emceeing it or um doing some different activities and yeah I'm, I'm kind of seen as a funny funny teacher what pays better the talent show or the comedy works the talent show or the comedy works oh <laughs> well the joy that those kids bring me you can't put a price on that mike no that you know right that's thrown in with the the salary i mean that's one thing <laughs> i learned too that's one thing i learned too is being a public employee with guaranteed pay increases in a union being a teacher and then going to comedy, which is as independent as you can get. It's two completely different worlds. I, I remember when I first started doing comedy, I'm like looking around like, oh, nobody makes any money doing this. Like, yeah. like you know, and I didn't expect it to pay like what my day job paid, but I'm just kind of like, oh, like we really don't make any money. Like if I go and do this show a couple hours away, I'm going to lose money going to do the show. Yeah. And I'm like, ah. you know, but you really love it, but you kind of learn early on. And then I, I talked to a lot of headliners in green rooms and they say, what do you do for your day job? You know, when I was hosting and I'm like, I'm a teacher, they go, Oh, that's great. They're like, how many years in? I'm like, you know, at the time I was like 15, 20 years in, they're like, Oh, that's awesome. They're like, you got a pension and benefit. You know, these are guys who have been doing comedy for 30 years and we're around the same age or they're a little bit older. And they're seeing that, you know, not having retirement and not having a a day job, a solid income, you know, they're kind of seeing the reality of it you know, down, down the line for them. So they're, they're kind of like a lot of people have told me, you know, not in a bad way. They're like, you could do comedy and keep your day job. You don't have to, you know, leave it if you don't want to. So. Yep. Both my parents are teachers. And yeah, when I told them, I was, I mean, they weren't thrilled with me being a journalist and because right. I stepped away from their path was education and right. they're both New York state teachers in the union with decent right. pay and right. stability. That's the main thing. Yeah. And then I moved back to New York and I was like, yeah, well, I'm working on Amazon sales and I'm making good money doing that. And then I'm like, well, I'm going to do comedy. And my dad's like, fuck. Like, (laughs) it's like, no. It's like the opposite of teaching. It really is. It's like, it's a complete opposite. And for me, it's great to be in both worlds, 
because I have the benefit of the stability of my job, but my job also has a Monday through Friday schedule that allows me to do comedy on the weekends. And now my kids are older and uh, don't need as much at home. So the longer I've been doing it, the more I've been able to branch out and, and do more comedy. So I really can't imagine doing comedy like from the life that I've lived my whole life just being a stand-up comedian, like if I started from my 20s, not that I couldn't do it or wouldn't want to do it. I just can't imagine it because my life has been so different. Yeah. You know, I own a house. I'm married to a teacher. We have two kids. We live in the suburbs. We can pay our bills. And, uh, you know, if comedy were to end, I'm good. You know, like when the pandemic hit and people really couldn't work for 15 months. I know people who are literally like, you know, in trouble because all of their income was through show business. So it's nice to have that stability. You kind of, you kind of form into, you know, what you do for your life. And, you know, you become like a nine to five person, like you, you show up every day for work and, and you, you know, you do the things necessary to do a good job. And uh, comedy is so different because, you know, show business and stuff, because you're, you're living from gig to gig and uh, it's all different times, all different places, all different circumstances, all different pay rates. You know, the amount of money, we, the, the, the fact that the value of what we do changes so dramatically. I've done comedy for free and I've done it for a thousand dollars. You know what I mean? I've done it. It's, and it's like, I just did the same comedy and everything in between. Sometimes it's worth 50 bucks. Sometimes it's worth 300 bucks. Sometimes it's worth 500 bucks. It's crazy. Whereas like my teaching, I have like a stable salary that you know what you're going to be making all the time. And you know what your pay increase for the next year is going to be. It's laid out in a schedule. I can look on a schedule and see what my salary will be next year. You know, like you can see. So it's like the most stable job to, you know, the most unstable job. So I've, I see both, you know, both sides. How much work are you bringing home too? like as a gym teacher? Because I know my mom, a lot of what she had to do was decorating the classroom. Right. And working on projects. I don't remember her taking a whole lot home. Right. It can be how efficient you are at work and, and how much you do at work. I mean, there's times when I uh, go in a little earlier, stay a little later so I can get stuff done. A lot of the stuff I have to do has to do with equipment and setup. It's almost like physical stuff, like manufacturing the, um, the environment in the gym requires me to move things around, put things together, set things up. But it doesn't require at the elementary level, it doesn't require me grading papers and stuff like my wife yeah. has to do for English. She has a lot of work to do. And there's times when she's backed up with work at home. So I ask everybody this. Uh, do you remember the worst show you've ever had? Worst set? Yeah, absolutely. The worst set I ever had was I was probably a year into comedy. And the old Comedy Works room in Albany had a, a showroom upstairs and a showroom downstairs. And they used to do the private party shows downstairs. So sometimes we would do a 7.30 show upstairs, an 8.30 show downstairs, and a 9.30 show uh, upstairs. And as an MC, I'd go back and forth and, and do a lot of stuff. And I was doing the private party, which was the show in the middle. At 8.30 downstairs, there's still a show going on upstairs. I'd have two watches on so I could know when to get people off stage. And I had to do 10 minutes. And it was like uh, the people were eating dinner. And it was like a 50th birthday party for somebody. And they were just not having the con. I don't know if they understood that there was going to be a comedy show or anything else, but the people just did not want to listen. And I, it was like, uh, I felt like a substitute teacher in the hallway telling kids to slow down. You know what I mean? Like they just weren't listening to anything. I mean, it was to the point, it was like trying to do comedy in a noisy hallway. I remember thinking at the time, I'm like, like a couple different times I had to go, you guys know there's a show, right? Like you guys, like I'm telling jokes, like they had no clue. So 
they ended up shortening the show so much. I did my 10 minutes as a host. I, I mean, I looked right at my watch. I had the timer on my watch going and it was like nine 58, nine 59. Okay. And I saw the feature act coming in for the, the next thing. And he, he gave me the thumbs up from the back there and then he was ready. And I brought him on stage and the feature act was a seasoned headliner, a guy named Eddie Clark. And then, uh, the headliner was a guy named Kyle Grooms. And it's the funniest thing is I've actually opened for Kyle Grooms. I never met him because we were going back and forth between the two rooms and he was only doing the downstairs show. And Tommy had him booked on something else like offsite. So I worked with him, but never met him. You know, I, I didn't even bring him on stage because we tag team the, the downstairs show and Eddie brought him on stage. So instead of doing like a, a 10 or 15 and a, a 25 and then a 45, they were so bad that they shortened a show to 10, 20 and 30. Oh, wow. So I, I, I talked to Eddie and he goes, yeah, they were brutal. And he go, and Eddie has done every kind of tough show that you can do. He was a cruise ship comedian and stuff. So he's done every different kind. He goes, I used every trick in the book to stick and jab and move. He goes, I was like a boxer just on my toes the whole time. He goes, they were brutal. I go, I know that's like, they didn't even, I don't even know why they did their party at the comedy works, why they even wanted a comedy show for the thing They they would have been better off just not having a show and just having their dinner. And then he said it was the same thing for Kyle. And he, you know, he got through a set they were good, but it was miserable. It was just like, um, it was like the first time I ever did comedy where the people just didn't want to listen. It was like, I was like doing comedy against their wishes. You know, it was crazy. So, I mean, I've had bad shows since then and stuff, but that's the one that really sticks out to like, you can only do comedy if the people are, will sit and allow you to do comedy. If they're right. going to talk and stuff the whole time, but I did my time, you know, I don't know if I could have done my time if I was featuring or headlining to do that much, but at the time I was only a year in, so I had limited skills and stuff, but man, I just remember the knot in my stomach after that show and just feeling like, I'm like, it actually, it was like, I, I tried to do comedy and it like, didn't work. You know what I mean? Like it was just weird. And I had had some good shows and bad shows and stuff, and, but this was like a different level. It was like, this was like, I've heard a lot of different stories about people trying to do comedy at like music festivals and, and stuff. And, you know, I've been to open mics where people don't want to listen and stuff, but uh, this was just, it was just awful. I'll never forget it. I mean, it stayed with me a long time. I could not get it out of my head. And I look back on it now and I don't have the feeling attached to it anymore. So I can like think about it, but it was like, it was brutal. There were people were interrupting and people were talking and noise. It was like, you were trying to do comedy for people who didn't want you to do comedy, you know, like do a show. It was very bizarre. Yeah, sounds That's like definitely the worst show. Sounds like a stress test for you. Yeah. It, it was like, uh, it was just weird. Like it was just, uh, it was just a weird one. So when you're on stage, do you ever have flashbacks of that? Like if somebody is talking over you or not listening, or there's a conversation that breaks out, do you right. think back to eight years ago? Uh, it's always there. You know, like w when you asked me, it immediately popped into my head what my worst show was. Yeah. I'll never forget. It. It's something I've talked about with other comics and they've, they've relayed similar stories about having a situation where people don't want to listen. Sometimes it's a corporate. I actually, I, it probably helped me because a few years later I did a corporate where I was performing for like 200 people. It was a, a 25th anniversary of a real estate company. And they invited all their clients. And so there was like lawyers and real estate agents and clients and uh, politicians and all kinds of people there. And I was a similar situation where it was um, in the courtyard of a hotel, like an indoor courtyard. And I was, I was, they set the stage up near the fountain. So I had probably like 25 or 30 people right in front of me standing, watching me do my set. But then everybody else, it was like a mall. Like it was just people walking around, getting hors d'oeuvres, getting drinks and stuff. And it, when I did that set, 
I just focused on the 25 or 30 that were in front of me, had a great set, got paid a lot of money. And, uh, you know, but it wasn't an ideal situation. I did like 15 minutes in like a really kind of loud room, but the 20 or 30 people who came up to the stage and watched really enjoyed it, but it just wasn't an ideal setting for comedy. I mean, that bad set in the club was like, there was no 25 or 30 people listening. It was just like the whole crowd was just, just talking and stuff. It was just really bad. My girlfriend, uh, this weekend, she, she said, uh, I had a show at a place that it's got a lot of potential. The audience was not, the audience is okay, but like, it's a bar that's set up like a, like it's got a showroom and then a bar room and Mm -hmm. a railing. So the people on the bar can lean over and watch a show, but they're not coming down and sitting in the seats. At right. least not enough of them to really make a difference. Mm-hmm. And she's like, why do you do that show? Because you have so many other good rooms where you don't have to worry about that. And I said, well, they pay well. Yeah, you know, it's you a know, trade-off. It, it's a concession I have to make right now. And I'm like, right. I want to pay rent. I'm going to have to do yeah. that show. So right. there's that element in there to where, yeah, it's not a club. And like, right. especially when you're in the bars, it's like, well, you know, if they're going to pay me to do this, then I'm going to put up with it. And yeah. And when they say, hey, do you want to do another show? I'm like, yep, sure thing. Right. Sometimes it's a job. You're, you're, if you're in a, performing in a situation where uh, the people aren't willing participants, like sometimes if you get a budget from a bar or a venue and you come in and do the show, but people don't know comedy is going to go on, you know, it's not going to be ideal. You know, it's, yeah. it's, um, but yeah, I, I'd, um, I'm not relying on the money the way you are as a producer and right. stuff and running a business, but, I would much rather perform for less money in an ideal situation and enjoy the show as a performer, you know, as a, as a producer, it's like, you go, you want, you want to do shows and make money and stuff. So you got to put up with it. What's the one piece of advice you would give to a comedian who's relatively new? I would just say, just be consistent Uh, because in terms of like uh, nuts and bolts with your act, everybody's got a different way that they, write a different way that they do it and a different idea of what they think comedy is. And it's unique to every person. Everybody's going to find people who are successful at it are going to find what works for them. Some of my favorite comedians are comedians who aren't like me, like people who aren't um, writing driven, really dynamic performers. I like all comics. I like storytellers. I like all different kinds of comedy of stuff that I don't do. I'm pretty much uh, set up punch, but everybody has the same thing in common that they're working hard and that means different things to different people. So I've, I've met comics that say they never write a thing down and they're headliners and successful and made a lot of money doing comedy. And, and I've met other people who are meticulous and uh, really pursue it like a craft. And I've, I've seen everything. I would just say, be consistent. You have to get on stage. You have to write. You also have to, you know, try to work in new markets and meet new people and always try to keep moving forward. I don't think there's any mystery to it. It's just people that they, they have that old stage time, stage time, stage time. It really is. And it's, it's also writing and, and uh, networking and just always pursuing um, something new, a new market, always try to pursue something new in your act. Always just try to keep moving forward. That's all I would tell them. Cause if you love it, you're going to do that. And, and you have to do that. If you're going to be in this for any sustained period of time, you really do have to love it. I mean, if a lot of people get into comedy and dabble a little bit and realize that it's not for them because they like it, they don't love it. And I, I think you really have to to love it. And uh, if you do just, just keep working hard and, and, uh, and just be consistent, keep getting on stage, keep performing, keep writing, uh, listen to your sets and just keep uh, trying to make what you do better. And get that teaching job. 
Yeah, exactly. Have a way to pay your bills. <laughs> That's a yeah. big one. I remember, God, it was, I think a guy in Utica a few years ago, he had just done his first or second open mic and did well. And he talked about like the next time saw me talked about how he just quit his job to pursue comedy. And I'm like, Oh boy, right. that's, that's going to be a rough one. That's like, that's a tough lesson. And that guy was Louis CK. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow he's going to bounce back. <laughs> yeah. I mean, everybody's got a different situation. If you, if you have the means to quit your job and you really want to do it and you can pay your bills, that's fine. For me, I, I, it was never an option for me because when I started, I was already married with kids and I had responsibilities. So I had to take care of them first before I could do, you know, anything that I wanted to do, even not even in terms of uh, a career, just being able to get out of the house and do comedy. So I had to uh, make sure everybody was taken care of at home. Eh, It's worked out. Right. But dude, thank you so much for doing this. How can people follow along with what you're doing? Social media? I'm just Dan Guerin on Facebook and Instagram coming up. I've got a few weekends at the comedy works the first and second week of March. And then actually it's uh, this weekend, last week in February, first week of March. And then uh, March 20th, I'm going to be at the funny bone for a brunch show. And then March 26th, I'm going to be in Millbury mass. And that's all stuff you can, you can see online. And then April 8th and 9th, I just booked this actually yesterday. I'm going to be at the attic comedy club in Worcester mass. Not bad. Yeah, I'm always trying to stay busy. And I'm sure other stuff will pop up in between then. And uh, yeah, you can always find me. I write, anybody who wants to follow me on Facebook, it's Dan Garen, G-E-U-R-I-N. I'm always writing jokes on there and always, um, you know, promoting shows and stuff like that. And Instagram, me being an old guy, I'm not really picture driven. Uh, yeah, I'm kind of seeing too. that. But but I have it just because everybody else has it. And it's a great way to get a hold of people. I think it's a little more... Uh, sane and healthy for the soul than Twitter. I got off Twitter a few years ago because it just seemed to be a lot of arguing for no reason and a lot of nastiness. I got caught up in a couple of different threads of people arguing online, comedians, famous people and stuff. And my name was thrown in there too. And I wasn't even involved. And I was like, I got to get off of this thing. I don't even know <laughs> what it is. And all, all of a sudden I'm like, I'm, I'm embroiled in a controversy, you know, between two famous people. And I'm like, I don't even have anything to do with this. You know, you got your name out there. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, again, man, thank you so much for doing this. And well, thanks for having me, Mike. Of course. Good luck with the rest of the day. I mean, I hope the garage is going to be all, all right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's what I'm worried about today is getting that garage door fixed. <laughs> all right, well, I'll talk to you in a bit. <laughs> See you, Mike. Wait outside your bedroom I, I hope they let me in